0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we talk about the strange, the bizarre, and the sleazy films of the VHS era. Tonight we are doing the 1971 classic, Headless Eyes. My name is Luke and I'm joined by Leland.
1: Listeners, if you at home would like to experience the depressing job market prospects for art majors without talent. Then, as of this broadcast, you can find 1971's The Headless Eyes for free on YouTube, or for rent on Amazon, or streaming on Full Moon if you are somehow compelled to give that guy money. And then you, like us, will be amazed that the main character made it through the entire film without using the pun I will kill you. It does
0: that even count as a pun?
1: Yeah, like I will kill you, you know. Uh I, I don't know me, you're dead.
0: So if you've seen the the box art, like actually this same box art was used for another movie, although I can't I, I think it's just called the killer eye. But the the box art makes it look like we're dealing with a killer eye, which we're we're clearly not. So As awesome as that cover is, it's a little misleading. So this movie was directed by Kent Bateman, who is the father of the more famous Jason Bateman. Are you familiar with Jason? I am not. Uh, He's he's probably best known for Arrested Development, but he's in tons of movies. He's the dad in Juno. I had no idea. Uh, Anyway. Yeah, uh, Kenneth Bateman, or Kent Bateman, only directed four movies and then some episodes of Family Ties and Valerie, which I thought was kind of interesting. This is really this director's only horror film. Yeah, so he directed this in 1971. He didn't make another movie until 1978, when he made an adventure film called Land of No Return. Then he made a movie in 1982 called The Rogue and the Grizzly. Then in 1987, he directed an episode of Family Ties. In the late 80s, early 90s, he directed four episodes of Valerie. And then in 1998, he directed a movie called Bench at the Edge, which IMDb describes as a surrealistic black comedy that celebrates the gift of life through the loss
1: of life. All right. Yeah. I don't think any of these are going to be like what we're looking at today.
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I have no interest in any of them, Um, but I quite like this movie and, and speak. So while I'm on IMDb, another kind of weird thing is there are only four actors credited for this movie. Like, obviously there's more than four people in this movie, but IMDb only lists four.
1: I didn't do much research after watching this, but I did see that there is a user review. It's like a reviewer on IMDb claiming to be the director. Yeah, I think
0: it probably is the director. (laughs) He even has his email address. I thought about emailing him and seeing if we could get an interview.
1: Yeah. uh, So per that post, you know, the movie was created with, quote, uh, few funds. So... Perhaps they just didn't credit the other actors because it was just voluntary stuff. They just pulled them off the street.
0: Yeah. So IMDb lists four actors and three of them acted under aliases. So people really did not want to be
1: credited uh, to this movie. God, you think they just didn't want to be affiliated? Just hand me my paycheck and I'll get out? Yeah. It's not that bad.
0: There, there is a weird trend among, especially actors who make it big, and I don't think any of these actors made it big, but um, except for the, the lead, uh, I guess he was a Swedish actor who went on to be fairly successful. But um, there's a thing with sort of successful actors not wanting to discuss or even acknowledge their early horror movies. So, for example... Apparently, Jennifer Aniston just refuses to discuss Leprechaun. And Matthew McConaughey refuses to discuss uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, New Generation. So, I don't know. People
1: are easily ashamed of their work in horror, apparently. That's a shame because I think Leprechaun is probably Aniston's best work. But, I, th-
0: if, I but, mean, uh, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of her her brand of humor, um, but she's not bad in Leprechaun. Like, she's fine in it. I mean, compare that to Friends. I'd never watched an episode of Friends. I've seen bits and pieces on TV enough to know that it is not for me.
1: You're not missing anything. I didn't feel like I was. But New Generation, was that the second Texas Chainsaw film? No, that's like the fifth. Oh, God. I mean, if if the sequel was, was bad, that can only imagine... You know the first I mean, one down the line.
0: A lot of people love the the first sequel, Texas Chainsaw Two. I mean, that one was at least directed by Toby Hooper.
1: Oh, I was under the impression everything after the first one was just uh, it's a total waste of time.
0: No, so um, apparently Toby Hooper was kind of annoyed that people didn't see the comedy in the first movie because he really wanted it to be comedic, and so. The second movie, which he also wrote and directed, he went over-the-top comedy with. I'm not a huge fan of the second one, but people who really love the comedy aspect like it a lot. I mean, it's goofier. And then the third one, which is just called Leatherface, is kind of like a remake of the first one. It's definitely not bad. It's not good, but it's standard, like, slasher movie fair and then the matthew mcconaughey one i can't remember if it's called new generation or next generation but it's it's really wacky it's not good but it's kind of worth seeing just for how
1: bizarre it is i'm gonna have to take your word for it i I don't know if i'll ever bother going to watch the sequels the first one is good enough for me but i didn't really think it was uh comedic
0: Well, that's why Toby Hooper made the sequel. Because he wanted to be acknowledged for his gifts of comedy.
1: Uh, See how this guy dropped after getting whacked with the sledgehammer? Classic.
0: Well, like the second one, for example, stars Dennis Hopper, and he's doing his over-the-top crazy thing. And there's a scene where he fights Leatherface with two chainsaws, like one in either hand and Leatherface has this super long chainsaw. Um, so it's just stuff like that, like really goofy sort of over the top. There's a scene where Leatherface tries to seduce the main character and he like puts a skin mask on her so they can be like leather faces together.
1: Yeah. You're not selling this.
0: <laughs> I'm not a fan of it, but people really do love that movie. Like, I, I know plenty of people who think that's the best
1: one. I do like Dennis Hopper, but I don't think I'm willing to put up with that.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's good in the movie, but I, I, the movie is not bad. It's just not my thing. But anyway, back to the Headless Eyes. So one other thing that I thought was interesting before we get into this is this movie was rated X and... I read a review online. I don't know how accurate this is, but they said that the X rating was unofficial and self-imposed. And I'm wondering why you would self-impose an X rating.
1: I wasn't aware you could self-impose a rating. I thought you had to go before a committee.
0: Well, you do if you want to get your film distributed in like normal theaters. Right. But I think that uh, my wizard videotape says that this was, quote, too gory for the silver screen and that it was straight to video. But I actually think it did play in like some grindhouses and some drive-ins, but it did not get a normal theatrical release. And I think that that's probably partially because it was not officially rated. I'm just wondering what the motivation would be to, impose an unofficial rating most movies that come out without mpaa approval just come out as unrated
1: i mean maybe they the uh distributors were so afraid that this movie would undersell that they decided to go for like an advertising gambit you know just say hey this movie's crazy guys give us give give us ticket money
0: i mean i think that helped once It came out on video, but I don't think that would have helped in 1971. I think it would have really hindered it. Maybe the X rating was uh, imposed later. I know it was on uh, the UK's video nasties list, (laughs) which was like their list
1: of banned films. I see. So it's kind of notorious for that. Maybe the trailer will reveal something.
0: All right. So before we get to the trailer... Like, who, if anyone, would you recommend this movie to, Leland?
1: I think this film is probably a definite watch for anyone who's interested in low-budget, 70s crazy murder filth. But I don't think this has broad appeal. You can't just really recommend this to anybody.
0: Yeah, if you're a fan of Abel Ferreira films, and he he made the original Driller Killer, he made the original Bad Lieutenant, Um, He made MS-45. Uh, This feels very similar to his work. So if you like him, or if you like movies like Basket Case, or um, movies that show that seedy 70s side of New York, then I think this is totally worth checking out. I, I think it's worth checking out for the atmosphere alone, and the musical score, which we will talk about. But yeah, this has zero broad appeal. I think most people would be either bored or repulsed. I'm I'm
1: glad you brought brought that up though, because I was getting Bad Lieutenant vibes from this. I haven't seen his other films, just that one.
0: (laughs) Uh, It's worth Driller Killer and um, Ms. Forty Five are both worth seeing. Nothing else is jumping to the forefront of my mind, but I might be missing some.
1: That said, I liked this movie way more than I thought I would. I I thought it was going to be a lot slower.
0: No, I actually... So last week, I was like... I was saying that this would be a bad one. And I've always liked this movie, but on my careful watch this time, I had more respect for it than I previously had.
1: Especially for the budget.
0: Yeah. So we're getting into a review now. Let's play the trailer and... Then we'll go through the plot.
2: He called himself a collector. But what he collected meant someone had to die. A maniac is loose. Obsessed by an uncontrollable urge to kill. He's watching you, but when you see him, it will already be too late and he will catch you hide and he will find you when you give him the eye he was very pretty you're already dead the headless eye
1: oh, well that ended a little abruptly but you get the idea
0: yeah it, it, and i just noticed looking at the trailer this movie was released on my birthday
1: wow october 27th <laughs> it should definitely hold a special place in your heart
0: Oh, it hasn't before, but maybe now it will.
1: So I guess we should bring this up now. Uh, apparently, most of the soundtrack was taken from library records. So Yeah,
0: so it was taken from a, a French library label, um, TV Music, which I absolutely love all of their output. They did not release a large number of records. I think there's like four or five, but they're all great. And the music here was done by... Cecil Luter, but his real name is Roger Roger, and that's what he's best known at least to people who sample and produce music. Like, no Roger Roger, um, he's one of my favorite library composers, and he recorded the album Jungle Obsession, which was originally uh, also a library record but kind of took on its life of its own. Like, Jungle Obsession is, is great 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 like one of my favorite albums ever but
1: i love his musical score here too what did you think of it so there are really two things that i i think carry this film and one of them is the uh arthur's actor i think uh is the main reason you want to watch this film and the second would have to be the music um I, I don't know the names of the songs, but there's like the one that sounds like a theremin is falling down like 10 flights of stairs. And then there's the murder music, which is Tycho drums accompanied by tinnitus flare up. Uh, I, I really enjoyed all the music, even though it's repetitive. I thought it I, set the scene pretty cool.
0: I think it works because it's repetitive or at least partially. Um, when when Roger Roger recorded under the name Cecil Luter, it was usually because he was u- he was doing solely electronic work and like using a Moog synthesizer, but he's obviously using more here. And I I really love this score and I love music like this, but um, I always struggle to identify like what was the source of each noise or each sound and. I never can which is frustrating but it's also what gives the music sort of a, a magical mysterious quality. I was I asked I asked my friend EK over at Laser Graves because he composes film music. I asked him if he had any idea like what the lineup of instruments that Roger Roger was using would have been and we basically agreed that it's kind of indiscernible. You know, he pointed out that Roger Roger was using instruments like marimbas and harpsichords and also drum machines um, during this time, but mainly just a blend of analog instruments and analog synth. And the, you know, a lot of times these recording techniques were off the cuff, they were just noodling with knobs and buttons, and they weren't necessarily anything that could be reproduced. So it, it definitely has that mysterious quality, but I think that that makes it more attractive and, and hugely effective, I think. This movie's creepy as fuck, and
1: it's mostly because of the music. This is the music that would play inside the head of a homicidal maniac.
0: Yeah, I wish this had um, a soundtrack release, so it never got a soundtrack release. You can buy the library records, TV music records run like 100 to 150 each, which isn't terrible for French library records from the 70s, but it puts them out of reach of most people, I think. Anyway, any other comments on the soundtrack before we get into the story?
1: No, I think we're ready to get this started.
0: At the very beginning, we see a woman being woken up in her house by a man who's trying to rob her. And he's saying something like, you know, I'm trying to steal money to pay rent. And this will be our main character, Arthur Malcolm. Sometimes he's called Arthur, sometimes he's called Malcolm. So I guess one is a first and one is a last name. But she, I think, thinks that he's trying to rape her. So he she starts to stab him with... Originally, I thought it was a letter opener, but the back of the box calls it a spoon.
1: It is most definitely a spoon. It's It's... laying on the nightstand next to a bowl.
0: I watched this on my VHS tape, and some of it was dark, and it was hard to see. So, I may have just been unable to discern the spoon. But, uh, whatever it is, she succeeds in, like, gouging out his eye. And it's hanging there by a, by a nerve in the middle of his face. And he starts screaming, my eye, my eye. But it loops the same sound over and over again to, like, comical, absurd effect. What did you think of this?
1: I didn't even notice.
0: Oh, no? no. They even play the same sound clip later in the movie. But yeah, he repeats my eye about 20 times. I just didn't realize it was the same sound clip. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I totally missed that
0: oh uh, i didn't i thought that was the most irritating thing in the movie oh
1: man i mean i do feel like there was a missed like a missed opportunity with this scene where they could have had like half the screen looking at the crowd and then the other half just pitifully looking at the asphalt
0: well <laughs> no we i think that that might have been a uh little advanced filmmaking technique for these guys at this time Uh, but we do manage to see the crowd that's standing over him but it's filtered red so it looks like there's blood in his eyes so we flash forward and we see the same guy he's cleaning an eyeball with a scalpel and smoking and it seems like the smoke would ruin the eye but oh well i guess people smoked doing everything then
1: well, he has a um, technique. Don't knock it.
0: Yeah, so he maybe it gives it that authentic coloring. But he's wearing an eye patch over his the eye that got gouged in the opening scene. And we see that he has a mobile hanging from the ceiling that's made of eyes. And they all appear to be real. Like, I think the eyes are done pretty well in this movie.
1: I think for the most part, when it gets to the actual artwork... Like uh, that he has in his storefront, it looks like a bunch of Muppet eyes stuck in epoxy.
0: Yeah, it kind of does. It's a little silly. But I mean, this movie's a weird um, meeting place between silly
1: and disturbing. I mean, how expensive are cow eyeballs, right? That's just what I imagined all these were.
0: Oh, I have no idea. But granted the the picture on my vhs might have been darker than like current copies i've never watched the dvd or blu-ray of this film but i imagine that no matter no matter what medium you look at it in it looks grimy as fuck like it, it this movie looks dirty to watch right
1: like the film was developed in a gutter
0: yeah and it's it's partly the film and lighting quality is partly the fact that all the people in it look natural like they're not polished at all and then the setting of 1970s new york which was just dirty and grimy and i don't know why i like this setting for movies but i really do and it really puts me in the moment like I feel like I'm in a grindhouse theater in the 70s watching this. And, like, people are masturbating in the back row.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, there is a certain charm to this, like, 180p, (laughs) like, grunge fest. And there are many movies that come out nowadays that try to replicate this look digitally. And it never quite hits the same mark.
0: No, it's... I mean, I think that um, Tarantino and Rodriguez did pretty well for Grindhouse, but other than that, whenever directors try to do this, it just looks cheesy to me.
1: So, we hear a voiceover, a voiceover narration. Wait, wait, before,
2: and
0: I think,
1: before we get to that, how would you feel if this man stole your eyeball and then preserved it in like a Chinese takeout box I
0: mean, he does it pretty lovingly. Like, he he freezes them in, like, blocks of ice. And I think the one block of ice is his eye that he lost in the beginning. And he kind of carries it around and lets it watch things.
1: Yeah, I was under the impression he was going to cart his own eyeball around to all the murder scenes.
0: Yeah, no, they kind of dropped that gimmick early on.
1: He does have a pocket full of eyes at the end of the film, though, that aren't from his victims
0: that aren't from his victims.
1: Well, at least not the victim that he kills in that scene. So maybe he's just always riding dirty with eyeballs.
0: So, um, we hear a voiceover and I think he's talking to the eye, but he says, like me, you are possessed tomorrow. You'll awaken this delusion of freedom behind you. What hidden secrets do you guard and shelter? She laughed at you on the sidewalk. And I think he's thawing out his eyeball while he's saying this. What
1: do you think of the voiceover narration in this film? So this, this ominous monologue on the staircase really sets the tone for the rest of the film. I think it kind of establishes that he might be like digging deeper into like some kind of... uh schizophrenia because he talks to himself throughout the whole film perhaps he is talking to his eyeball though i mean i don't think that in the 70s uh
0: especially exploitation films as we pointed out on this show in the past uh, they weren't too careful about their psych psychiatric diagnoses right it was just kind of an amalgamation of um
1: different symptoms yeah but like but- e- even then as someone who has had like exposure to people who have been deemed criminally insane like this guy has a pretty close performance to some of them oh the i think this guy's performance is great
0: like it's i think that he probably could have turned in a better performance under a better director but there are moments in this film where he legitimately seems to be insane especially when he's mumbling to himself when he's killing people he's like trembling with excitement and his his speech quickens and he's very hyperactive and he it it looks like he's having an orgasmic rush
1: like i said earlier i think this guy's performance really sells this film like i feel like if uh if this man didn't put up this performance or like the bizarre musical score this could have easily been a very slow forgettable 70s film that would have been like entombed in the flame retardant sands of time (laughs) nobody would remember it i mean i don't know that
0: anyone remembers it now except us and people who collect it for the box art but Um, I do think it stands apart from a lot of similar movies from the time period.
1: Well, unlike the last film re-reviewed, if you try to look up a trailer for this, you'll actually see a bunch of YouTube reviews. Yeah, I think people buy it for the
0: artwork, though, and then hopefully get sucked into the movie.
1: That's just, like, the wizard staple, right?
0: Uh, Yeah, pretty much, although most of the movies that came out on Wizard are atrocious. Anyway, one other movie this reminds me of, and it's partially because of the narration, but also the tone, is Messiah of Evil. Did you ever see that?
1: I don't believe so.
0: I would love to do that on the podcast at some point. It's It's got a similar vibe to this. So does The Witch Who Came From the Sea that I talked about a couple weeks ago. But anyway, I'll try to stop comparing this movie to other movies. I mean, uh,
1: it's kind of hard not to. I mean, this whole trope of character study of serial killer is pretty common in this time frame
0: would you consider this a character study
1: i mean sort of it's like a one-man show he, he's the, the the whole plot is revolving around this guy much it's kind of like beyond the darkness but even beyond the darkness gave more screen time to the co-stars
0: well i was gonna say i mean that's true but we don't really get any Study here, like we get a character, but we don't get the study. We don't really find out anything about him. Like the film doesn't analyze
1: him to any degree. Mm, perhaps I'm not using the term correctly. Uh,
0: I just cha- feel like character- in a character study, in a character study, I should end the movie having a better understanding of the character than I began it with, and I do not have a better understanding at the end of this movie.
2: Mm.
1: I don't know, I think some things are revealed, but this is definitely, you're, you're, I will concede, it's more of a character exhibition. How's that? All right, I like that word. So we see him, and he's staring at this couple through a
0: window. Like, he's on the street, I think, and they're in a restaurant, and they're drunk, and they're laughing at him. I would be incredibly creeped out if I was in a restaurant and someone would, had their face pressed up against the glass
1: staring at me so this scene is really confusing but he is actually inside his storefront which you don't know he has yet and he is watching through the window a couple just uh getting getting totally blasted right in front of the sidewalk okay see i thought he was on the street and they were inside no it it, it took me a minute to get it to I was like, where is he right now? It's because he lives in an apartment above the store. But they haven't established he owns a store yet.
0: No, it takes a really long time to establish that. <laughs> so as the couple is walking home, he follows them and he knocks on their door and they invite him in.
1: <laughs> Who would do this? hey honey come on in (laughs) hey honey it's the peeping tom from down the street yeah (laughs) that's that's pretty much what she says
0: she says it's our friend from the window
1: (laughs) i I feel like movies like this are responsible for creating that that subculture of only murderers knock on the door without texting and and then i guess maybe uber eats they knock sometimes but like yeah don't answer the door because this guy is there
0: I mean, I think that was especially true of this time period in New York. Like, people were terrified of crime during this period.
1: It ain't even the 80s yet, man. That's when violent crime skyrocketed. No, that violent crime was bad in the 70s. Did you see this movie? Like, look at, the, <laughs> look at the setting. I'm not saying it was good, but it was worse than the 80s. Thanks to cocaine
0: mm. and
1: unemployment.
0: What, what year was... What year was the son of Sam? Mm,
1: th- didn't you just watch a documentary on that? <laughs> yeah, but I just don't remember the year. That was the late 70s. But anyway, what I was going to say is, in
0: that documentary, they do a really good job of showing like how terrified people were at the time of crime. And it was pre-80s. But this is this is earlier. So, um, regardless, they, they just invite him in. And of course he kills them immediately. He bashes them over the head with something. Could you tell what it was? It's a hammer. All right. Yeah. That was the
1: claw side.
0: That was blurry on my screen too. So there's this brutal hammer murder and then he helps himself to their wine and he sits down and he just stares at their dead bodies I think this was really uh, quite an effective scene in the same way that Henry Portrait of Serial Killer is, right? It's like just an unflinching, non-judgmental, but also unexplained look into violent crime. It's not that gory, though. I mean, for this to be on a video nasty list and, like, on the front of the VHS it says too gory for the silver screen, like... It's not that bad.
1: No, these guys basically have uh, Smucker's, like, preservatives rolling down their face.
0: But it feels dirtier, right? Like, there's not a lot of on-screen blood, but it's kind of like Texas Chainsaw, where you feel like you've seen something really gory.
1: I'm telling you, man, the distributors slipped someone some money to make it seem like this movie was way worse than it was.
0: Well, apparently, I read an interview with the director where he said that the, one of the producers on the film went and directed additional gore after he had finished the movie because the distributors didn't think it was violent enough. The Night Killer special. Yeah, exactly. So, um, after he has killed these people, he's, he's walking down the street, and someone walks up to him on the street and asks if he's alright, because he's bleeding. And we find out at this point he's a painter because he says that he was painting but then this woman invites him to her place she says we could both use a drink and <laughs> again like i so we find out that she's like a sex worker but even before or even after i knew that i was like would you really just this is all the all the prefacing it took to invite someone home like You see a guy on the street with blood on his hands and you invite him home?
1: I refuse to believe people were this trusting in the 70s, but I feel like we've said this before on the podcast. These films really give the impression that it was like free season for for serial killers. Open season for serial killers.
0: Yeah, well... They're they're going into her apartment, and I like this. She says the, um, she says something like, "I know it's not the best, but the rent is paid and there's no cockroaches." I thought that was a good, bare minimum
1: description. Maybe it's my imagination, but I'm pretty sure this hooker's apartment is the same one that Arthur lives in, or at the very least, the same one the opening scene occurs. Oh, you just mean it's the same set? Yeah, like it's the same apartment. They reused it because of the budget. Yeah, just, I don't know. It, I didn't notice. It's just missing all the eye props. As I pointed out, my VHS is dark. <laughs> That—that's what you pay. <laughs> that, yeah, that's that's the the risky take when you get that grindhouse, that actual genuine grindhouse effect. You have to this squint at a, everything. <laughs> it, it's an expensive tape too. It's like a, I don't know, eighty dollar tape now. Well, I mean, I
0: guess that's why no one's seen it. Well, don't uh, Charles Band reissued it. You can get the reissue for like 50 bucks on the full moon site, just it's on YouTube. (laughs) So, um, he's shocked when he finds out that she's a prostitute. Um, and she's like, Couldn't you tell? And she makes fun of the way he says prostitute, and so he starts out crazy now. He throws her on the bed, all right, get this. He throws her on the bed, and I was sure he's going to kill her, but instead he goes into the kitchen and leaves her on the bed, and he gets a knife, and she just sits there on the bed and waits for him to come back.
1: And of course, when he does, he stabs her in the throat. Most people don't act rationally, and definitely most people don't act rationally under stress. I don't know this this seems
0: too passive but anyway after he stabs her in the throat he puts her in the bathtub but she seems to still be alive at this point
1: yeah I think this might have been one of the added scenes um, which I didn't know that going into watching this so now I'm thinking about it as we review the film
0: I <laughs> hadn't thought of that but I do think it it is interesting that in this scene I
1: don't think we see him like gouge her eyes. No, Um. yeah, the first two, well, I guess it's technically three people that are murdered are completely un-eye related. Uh, yeah, well, the apparently, aren't eye related at all.
0: Apparently he does remove their eyes. It's just off screen. We yeah, don't see it. Yeah, we don't see it. Yeah. So we do see a newspaper headline, my favorite form of exposition, <laughs> that says the eye killer kills 14th. He's been busy. Yeah, so now we see, this is a really odd scene that comes next. Um, he's at home, and this woman comes to see him. And she says, it's been a long time. And he's like, how did you find me? And she says his mother. Um, and so I guess they they used to be lovers, or uh, she was his ex-wife, something. I think this woman is really striking, like I think she's far more attractive than he is. I don't know about all that. But... No, you didn't. You didn't think she was beautiful. Uh, not really. I was really struck by this woman for some reason. Um, I should just
1: say, not my
0: type. She's she's staring at his eye, um, and he asks if it bothers her, but she says it doesn't. Um, but this is all very awkward. And she finally says that she has so much to talk to him about and that she had to see him. And basically what I get from this conversation is that she's wealthy and the whole time that they were together, he thought that she was only with him as like a novelty thing to kind of show off that she was dating an artist, like a bohemian artist type. And he... Now that ever since he lost his eye, he wants to, like, be alone and establish his independence. He says he's been trying to live alone and she needs to learn to accept this. And she says that she thinks he's curable and that she won't let him do this to himself. And he says, I'm twisted. I'm sick. I'm trying to forget you and your phony sincerity. He says, I didn't just lose an eye, but something happened.
1: So what do you think about this whole scene? So I think we both got something a little different from this conversation. I was less focused on her dating Arthur as, as some kind of novelty. I was focused more on him complaining that he was unable to get financial independence through his art without her yeah i sense that as well like that is what i really took home from this conversation but like man the the things you're willing to put up with to get that good crazy dick like lady you know tortured artists generally want to stay tortured right that's their stick just just let them go there's plenty of absolutely insane fish in the sea and yeah, I don't know why she's so stuck on him. Yeah, she showed a lot of restraint sitting through his entire rant before uh, before walking out. But yeah, that line, I'm trying to forget you and your body's sincerity, that one stuck out to me. But like, what a boomer problem. Like, having a sugar mama is like a slight on your honor. Like, ah, my girlfriend makes more money than me. Uh, I think he's making a, a, a mountain out of a molehill here.
0: Yeah, he, he says um he says that if he didn't sell work that she was always there to pay the bills and it allowed him to forget how hard it was and he doesn't want to forget how hard it is. So maybe he feels like the inspiration for his art comes from
1: his misfortune. I feel like this is also kind of an establishing scene to let you know that he probably wasn't um he probably wasn't all right in the head before the spooning.
0: Yeah, well, he thought the correction to his financial woes was to rob somebody, so he wasn't wasn't entirely socially
1: adjusted. Yeah, but, I mean, he's like, yo, lady, I got to pay rent. And she's just like, yeah, I got to pay rent, too. Scoop? Yeah, did it? Uh, <laughs> one thing...
0: One thing I gathered from this scene, this conversation is that, uh, I mean, I noted this already, but he plays crazy really well. Like the ways he talks and the ways he acts are beyond my comprehension, which seems really authentic to me because with people who actually have mental illnesses, often the way they behave is beyond my comprehension. And so I feel like but see, this goes to the character study thing. It's like, I feel like I'm watching crazy, but I'm not understanding crazy. And the movie's not helping me understand.
1: I mean, maybe there isn't really anything to understand. Just experience. Again, character sure. exhibition. That's, that's what we're going to go with now. Sure.
0: So we we see possibly the worst or the most unfriendly <laughs> news broadcaster I've ever seen interviewing people on the street about how they feel about a murder being nearby. The scene seems really authentic and all the people in the crowd are great. They seem real. But the newscaster is really strange. Like, he mumbles his questions and then seems totally uninterested in what the person has to say.
1: This is a man who just wanted to get paid under the table and didn't want to be credited.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he's, he's like... He's like, how do you feel uh, knowing that there's violent crime in the neighborhood? And then the woman starts to answer, and he's like, oh, okay, that's very interesting. And then he moves on to the next
1: person. Yeah. Um, these are all clearly just free extras. Like the director just went to a crowd in the street and was just like, hey, kid, want to be in a movie?
0: <laughs> but see, that makes it feel real, too. It does. Like the. These aren't actors in costumes. Like These are real people. And that gives the movie an authentic feeling, which is what makes it creepier and sleazier in a way. But the police detective is there and he's saying that he can't figure out this guy. He leaves (laughs) no clues. Um, They don't know why he's taking the eyes. He's just a pervert.
1: Oh my God, yeah, I think the quote was like, nothing stands out about this guy. Except, you know, Arthur looks like a deranged homeless guy cosplaying Vincent Van Gogh. <laughs> like, well, this... and to
0: make it more ironic, <laughs> Arthur is there, right? Like, he's at the news broadcast. He's he's wearing sunglasses over his eye patch, but
1: like, as you know, that's pretty common for the killer to return to the scene of the crime as a spectator to see, you know, the aftermath of what's going on.
0: Well, especially because in this case, he only had time to gouge out one of her eyes and he needs the other one.
1: Either way, like, the law enforcement response to Arthur is probably, like, the most ridiculous part of the script because here you got, like, a bunch of eyeball-themed murders occurring within the vicinity of a storefront that sells eyeball art with a one-eyed owner... And, like, not a single investigator thinks to check this guy out. No, and I just found
0: it ironic that he was at the, he was in the crowd while the police officer was saying there was nothing. <laughs> He's, like, right behind him. <laughs> yeah, there was nothing um that stood out about him or something like that.
1: Like, hey, chief, what what about that that eye patch guy over there? No, we we can't. That's profiling, and uh, we want to avoid getting entangled with uh, violating ADA. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> so he gets really overwhelmed, and the movie does a good job of showing us that he feels overwhelmed. Like it portrays anxiety really well. Between the music and like, there's quick cuts to all these different faces um, so it gives the impression of like a large crowd around him and we see a flashback and he's up on a roof where someone is hanging their laundry and he starts to corner this woman it's kind of unclear at least it was on my video but I think he uses a clothesline to trip her and she like falls down the side of the roof
1: (laughs) yeah she just gets bodied by laundry it and doesn't really he, make much sense, even if you can see it.
0: No, but he it it's filmed very clumsily. If there's a flaw in this movie, I think it's the direction. I don't um, think it's
1: that bad, but it is rough in this scene.
0: Yeah, and so he gouges an eye out, but he's interrupted and he runs off, which is why he needs the other one. We see him walking home, like, in the present day, and there's this woman sitting on the side of the street, like rocking back and forth and she just keeps saying i know who did it i know who did it i know who did it over and over again and this really freaks him out too and i can see why like i didn't do it and i still would think this woman was freaky well she has no eyes right so is the implication that he had something to
1: do with her eye loss no i think he's just uh Everything he holds sacred is ocular, right? And here is this woman with no eyes.
0: Mm, Yes, I think you did do more uh, character study in this film than I did.
1: (laughs) Uh, But yeah, imagine that casting call where, you know, film looking for woman with no eyes. We know it wasn't a special effect either. Yeah, I think that's what... That's what I mean, This scene kind of startled me, too, because I wasn't expecting it.
0: So he, he starts running crazily through the streets, like, leaning against buildings, and he spots his next victim and follows her into her apartment. Like, this guy... This guy finds victims rapidly.
1: Again, open season.
0: Yeah, it actually reminds me, so... um, We just started watching the newest true crime documentary on Netflix. What is it called? They've been releasing one true crime um, documentary a month. Um, This one's called Night Stalker. And it's about the murders that happened in California in the mid-1980s. And one thing that's really shocking and kind of scary about it We've only watched the first two episodes, but um, this guy would just like he killed anybody. There's no trend like kids, old people, men, women, uh, young people, like n- indiscriminately. And he'd kill like two or three people within the span of a few days. And so it's just impossible to keep up with him or predict him. And this movie's got a degree
1: of that. Yes, uh, I was about to mention that. Um, the random nature of his victims is probably, is definitely intended for the script. It's, it's supposed to be um, like, you don't know where he's going to go next. Right. But in this case, he's following this woman into a building, an office building, and it turns out to be a casting department.
0: Yeah, we hear an agent on the phone, and he's like, saying he gets too many scripts and they're all terrible. And if the guy has something new to send it to him, but he's, you know, he, he ends this conversation and the woman that Arthur was following, who's apparently an actress, she comes in and he's just, the first thing he says is, let me see your body. And, and she starts to strip down. But do you think it's odd that we don't see
1: this scene? Uh, you know, for a movie that prides itself on being rated X, yeah, it is pretty weird.
0: I thought it was weird, too. We, In fact, we see no nudity in this film.
1: No, the closest um, you get is uh, this woman's back in a later scene.
0: Yeah, like, I'm not complaining. No, I'm not complaining. <laughs> if we did see nudity in this film, it would be grimy and nasty. Um, <laughs> because everything in this movie is grimy and nasty. But I just found it odd for an exploitation film that that we don't see this scene. Um but it's apparently she it's apparent that she did it because we see her like starting to unbutton her shirt and then starting to button it again.
1: Do you think um, this scene is like meta in any way like the the script was written to to illuminate something about the film industry? I don't know. Um your your script has to stand out. Well, what if this guy Just collected a bunch of eyeballs like yo okay i haven't gotten that one yet
0: well the the director also wrote the movie so this was kind (laughs) of like a one-man project Hmm. but i like what the agent says um the actress says that she was in one film but it didn't get a release and he says i've got a part for you in my film and it will get released
1: oh do you think there was like ulterior motive there
0: no, but he says it in a way that sounds like there is, which is what makes it funny to me. Mm-hmm. So he Arthur follows this woman into an elevator, and she kind of gets freaked out because, like, any normal person would. And she runs from the building, and it looks like he's... It looks like she's, like, telling her boyfriend or somebody about what's happening and pointing back to the building but we see Arthur sneak into the office and i think he's taking her file like the actress's file
1: right well he's trying to look up her address right he's just going through like what looks like like Romney's binder full of women just looking for her phone number or her address or something
0: right and do- does the movie give any hints or do you have any idea why is he so interested in this woman?
1: He really likes her eyes. Like once he sees the the prized possession, that is what he must have.
0: Cuz it every other murder in the movie it feels kind of arbitrary and like ad hoc, but this one is certainly planned.
1: I'm surprised she even survived to leave the elevator. I thought the doors were going to open, and she, bam, no eyes. <laughs> yeah, I don't... That
0: would have been a little too Hollywood-stylish for this film. <laughs> he's interrupted by the secretary, and this scene is surprisingly suspenseful, where he's trying to hide, and she catches him. And at first, it seems like he's pleading with her to like let him go. But then she moves his eye patch and this gets him furious and he strangles her.
1: Yeah, I don't know if he would have let her go, but that, you, you do not touch the eye patch.
0: Oh, uh, This is the first time I think that we see him removing an eye where he's actually gouging it out. Yes. We don't actually see that much of it, though, but we do see his facial expressions and he keeps whispering to himself and like shaking and he looks kind of orgasmic as i said earlier like this is where i really feel like this actor is all in for sure we see him holding the eyeballs and he keeps saying i think he's saying you'll never have to worry again
1: he's talking to the eyeballs
0: all right well what do eyeballs worry about
1: he's liberated them from this accursed mortal body. And now he's going to take them home and take care of them in his own special little way by freezing them inside a low main container and then putting them in artwork.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. So next we get introduced to one of the, the otter characters in this film or the oddest subplot. Uh, this woman shows up in his store or his art gallery and she's saying you know i i admire your work i really love your work but he tells her that the store is closed and for some reason this is really traumatic for him and we start to hear the my eye scream from the beginning of the movie and the movie kind of d- derails into surrealism for a while we see him running down the street with his arms in the air, and, uh, crazily, and it, it, my eye is playing um, on the soundtrack along with I Like Your Work, and it like creates a cacophony of sound where the two are just overlapping.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is right after he got back to his apartment with one of the eyes, so he's probably in an emotionally heightened state right now. But I, lo- I loved this scene where he's like r- frolicking through the city in like hysterics, like mm-hmm. rubbing all over the church doors. I kind of wanted to like put all of these scenes where he's doing this together and then overlay it with like the Sex in the City theme.
0: <laughs> I, uh, I kept thinking of the scene where Nick Cage runs around the streets in Vampire's Kiss. Did you ever see that?
1: If I did, it was really long time ago.
0: Man, you've got to see it. Oh you've no. To... Wait, no,
1: I'm thinking of the Jim Carrey vampire film, which was awful. Oh no, that movie's terrible. <laughs> yeah, that is. <laughs> is um, pretty bad.
0: Vampire's Kiss is worth seeing just because Nicolas Cage is so weird in it. Like he's speaking in this accent that is hysterically weird. Um and I think he says that his dad used to talk like that, but it's not a discernible accent from anywhere on earth. Um, and there's this whole subplot where he just sadistically berates his secretary. And it, it's really funny that the movie is worth seeing, but there's a scene almost exactly like this, where Nicholas Cage is running around the city, screaming that he's a vampire. <laughs> and I'd swear it's lifted from this movie. Um, we see him reading a letter that the woman from the shop left for him, but I couldn't see what the letter said on my screen. Could
1: you? Okay, so I can I can read it out for you. Um, dear whoever you are. This will probably sound a little forward and presumptuous, but I something 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 art student, but I think your work is unique, something real neat. <laughs> May I come in or, or something? Something, uh, I can come in. Can we talk? Signed a friend.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. So I could see none of that on my copy.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I watched this on YouTube, so it was a little, a little bit scaled up. It probably would be the same if you watched it, um, streaming, but yeah, unlike a VHS, there's no way.
0: Yeah. I imagine the YouTube one was taken from a DVD. He sneaks into the graveyard. And starts digging out this corpse's eye. Is this the woman that he wasn't able to get the second eye from? And yes. And that's why he's here?
1: This is the roof woman. And right. And although I'm pretty sure morticians remove eyes prior to burial, I'm going to allow this scene.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I frankly have no idea.
1: I mean, maybe that's only if it's an open casted. I mean, it... And now because the eyes will rot in the head so i mean yeah okay if you're just putting them straight in the ground then i'm sure there's like protocol for skipping some steps but i'd imagine this woman had a family it, okay look it's this is still her having eyes is still more believable than the fact that this guy somehow hasn't been caught yet by law enforcement all right so we'll stop worrying about it then and move on speaking um, of
0: yeah, so law, uh, this off-duty cop catches him in the act, and he Arthur says something like, "I'm, you know, I'm twisted," and the cop says, "Well, you just twisted me into an, into a promotion." Um, and Arthur keeps saying, I- "I'm not finished," and so he manages to knock the cop over and begins to beat him and kills him with a rock
1: is kind of a pitiful cop well you know in law enforcement training programs um, they would have you believe the number one killer of officers in the field is complacency and this seems like a scene that would be like shown as a training clip to to scare the shit out of some new academy recruits and you'd have like this instructor who's like saying uh, like you know what this guy did wrong like he was a gentleman and tried to help this scumbag out of the grave. <laughs> you know, you are not a gentleman, you are a warrior. That's that's pretty much the state of um law enforcement in the United States. But yeah, he try he, he goes to let out this crazed killer, just hand tries to hand him out of the out of the grave. So he opened himself up. Does d- we don't see him taking the cops' eyes though, right? No, he's not interested in the eyes. This is totally self preservation. In fact, yeah. I think the, the camera zooms in on the detective's face as Arthur is booking it from the scene to to kind of drive home the point that these are not good eyes for art.
0: <laughs> there has to be a certain a certain light.
1: Not all eyes are equal.
0: No, so the the girl shows back up to the art gallery and she wants to explain the letter she wrote to him. And this is why I didn't worry too much about being not being able to read the letter because she explains it now. But she's we find out she's an art student, and we hear his voiceover asking, like, what does she really want? Like why is she here?
1: The only like voiceover in the entire film.
0: Well, except for at the beginning, where he was talking to the eyes. Wasn't that out loud?
1: I don't. I'm not sure. I imagined he was just. I thought he was just talking to himself in the dark, like real crazy. Yeah, I don't know.
0: I, for some reason, like thinking back on this movie, I think there's a bunch of voiceover in it, but I guess there's not. I guess it's just this scene. Hmm. And the dialogue in this scene is really strange like it's not good.
1: No, this um, this woman, this girl is definitely not believable.
0: No, she says she says things like how do you tell someone you've never met that you want to know them? And uh <laughs> and so she keeps giving hints that um like she wants to be his friend and she says I can see that the note offended you. And he says um, that it didn't offend him, but nobody likes to address a woman, especially one as young as her. Am I getting that right? That's what he
1: says. I made it. I think he made it seem like uh, he didn't want to be bossed around by women. This guy has like some big incel vibes. Yeah, for sure. She
0: says that she wants him to teach her like sculpting, and that she wants to be his friend. And she says, I know you're not a happy
1: person, but who is? Like, some people are happy. Yeah, this this is kind of a poor take on the manic pixie girl stereotype. Her name is Shenzi. Oh, Lord. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. About as believable as her character. So anyway, she's upset that her college degree isn't telling her how to use plastic in art so she is basically throwing herself at the feet of this guy who uh makes beautiful art with eyeballs and plastic (laughs) yeah she says um they look so real (laughs) holding up the muppet eyes
0: I thought they looked pretty real.
1: I I think the eyes look fine, except for the ones in the artwork. I don't know what it was. It just seemed a lot different. They're goofier. Oh, maybe I couldn't tell they're goofy because my picture wasn't as crisp. Yeah, I mean, I've never, I've never seen, like, flesh put into epoxy. I don't know how that works. I think some guy put a hot dog in epoxy once. And, yeah, like, I don't know. Does it mold? I don't think so. I think it preserves it perfectly. Like... There's an oddity
0: store here that sells, like, animals, like, in acrylic like that. Hmm. But he basically says that I don't like people. He says, I don't like to get to know people well, and perhaps I'd have to get to know you too well. Uh, I wasn't sure what that meant, but he says he'll think about it. I mean, this
1: man and, like, human connection is, is... He does not have a good track record. No, but when when he sees that she's
0: interested in the eye art, he gets a lot more interested, and he asks how he can contact her, and she says, "If I'm not at school, you can find me at the lighthouse under the George Washington Bridge, where no one bothers
1: me." I guess that's what people did before, you know, MapQuest. <laughs> they just gave landmarks like, "Yeah, I just." I'll be there somewhere. Well,
0: I didn't think that was as odd as, first of all, she would have a phone that he could call her on, um, even if that, it was at the college. And also, I just found it odd that anyone hung out under the George Washington Bridge.
1: But well, I mean, you know, the next scene shows off this romantic spot, like right off, I'm, I'm assuming, the Hudson River. Like, just look at those jagged rocks in that poisoned corpse water isn't that pretty romantic i i mean it's the best you can get <laughs> you got to
0: work with what you have
1: like I, I haven't i don't have much experience with new york but i think that's one of those rivers where if you drink the water you got to go to the hospital
0: so she's drawing in charcoal and he says it's quite good and we see them walking along the water and this is the only scene where we get really different music like the music is trying to go kind of romantic at this point. Are you, are
1: you are you kind of rooting for him at this point? Like, hey man, he's going to find love. You know,
0: I wasn't um I wasn't in this viewing, but the last time I watched this, I remembered being like more on his side. I'm not sure why. There's really nothing sympathetic about him at all.
1: He's just trying to find someone who shares his same vision. Uh-huh. Uh huh.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> um, I was just thinking uh, his his same love of eyes because she she loved the eye art, but she and uh, I think that that's why this scene's here though. I think it's here to try to make us sympathize with him more.
1: Yeah, she uh compliments or he compliments all the sick cube art she's drawn by the rocks and um, and then she. Tells him <laughs> that uh, that she has an art show where she's going to be exhibiting some of her work.
0: Yeah. If this scene did want to create sympathy for Arthur, then it needed to come earlier in the movie. Like, the movie, this is really late in the movie to be uh, introducing a whole new subplot. Yeah, That yep. doesn't go anywhere.
1: You know, when we eventually do our our headless eyes remake, we're going to have to rearrange the scenes a little bit, really put more of this the plot into this relationship. Where do All you right. keep getting these eyes and, you know, he has to keep it a secret until she's like fully um uh, you know, fully brought into the fold.
0: Well, now you're just making like an American uh 90s suspense domestic drama movie. He he tracks down the actress and there's a whole scene where like he's following her in a car and she's in the taxi and he he follows her after they get out of the cars. Do you think that it lessens the suspense for scenes like this when our protagonist is the killer?
1: I don't think so. I mean, you're kind of rooting for her at this point. I also want to mention that she's having a phone conversation that he's listening in on before this chase starts, and it almost sounds like she's like muling drugs in her purse. Did you catch that?
0: Well, yeah, and I it. I also wondered why she's here. I was right. She she's in it like an an ab- abandoned looking at least right now uh like slaughterhouse or meat packing plant
1: so he got her address from the casting office she notices that she's being followed by this guy and then for some reason her survival instinct is to just kind of lose him in like the industrial part of town But when they mentioned the drugs, I was almost expecting like a deuce ex machina where like her drug dealing like boyfriend or something would come and just wreck his shit. But that didn't happen.
0: Yeah, I I have trouble caring about her because we don't follow her and we're introduced to her halfway through the movie. I think that does kind of ruin the suspense of scenes for me.
1: I mean, I don't, know. I don't really have to know her tastes and interests to be like, "Oh man, I don't I don't want her to get her eyes plucked out." Oh, well, no, don't get me wrong, between the two of them, I'm more
0: sympathetic to her, but only barely. I do have this romantic subplot with Arthur now. Hmm. So, um, but there's a cat, there's a cat and mouse scene in the slaughterhouse and it takes him a long time, but he finally strangles her. It feels a little anticlimactic.
1: Well, first off, where are all the workers? Like this shop is just like a giant OSHA violation landmine. Like there's That's hooks laying around barrels everywhere. Like I thought this was abandoned until they opened the freezer and there's just rows of fresh meat.
0: <laughs> yeah, I did too. I mean, I didn't even, I didn't even realize it was supposed to be like, meat-related. Uh, I just thought they are in a warehouse.
1: So, yeah, then lunch break ends. Well, I guess I'm skipping ahead.
0: Yeah. He, he finally strangles her, and we see, like, his excitement building. He's trembling. His hands are shaking. He's mumbling and putting on his gloves, and he seems really orgasmic as he scoops the eye out. But then... His excitement is broken because he realizes that he's trapped in the freezer. And he he his complaint is or or he says, "I haven't shown my art yet.
1: And in the end, he becomes as frozen and preserved as his freaky eye art.
0: Yeah, but before before he freezes, we get a bunch of panicked close-ups on all the dead cow eyes. I thought this was incredibly creepy and effective.
1: Hmm. I am a little conflicted, though, because it's a pretty weak ending from a narrative standpoint, but it actually seems very plausible that this guy would, like, accidentally kill himself by, like, locking himself in a freezer.
0: Yeah, I don't think the, the ending is conceptually um, abrupt, but I think the way the movie is made makes it feel abrupt. Like, I think it's a directing and maybe writing problem, not a story problem.
1: Like, I wonder if this was the intended script or if they had to change things up because of, um, you know, cost measures. But this is the kind of thing where if this was based on a real story, the the producers would probably seek to change this ending into something a little more dramatic. I mean,
0: they're I kind of feel like they just kept filming until they had filmed all of the runtime because there's not really a plot here it's just a concept like the concept is there's this guy that wants to scoop out people's eyes let's have him do stuff
1: <laughs> it's like um it's almost like a promo for a potential television show
0: yeah yeah kind of like that like a, a pilot episode
1: hmm yeah i mean it's kind of sad how like you never see a specific shot of an actual eyeball getting scooped out like i i was really thinking it would be this last scene like they would throw the last of their budget at like animal eyeballs and have this guy scoop it out but yeah now you got to use your imagination in 2021
0: yeah so um this is the last scene so let's Let's get final thoughts and and a rating out of four.
1: yeah um the the this film is is practically I think I said this already. it's like practically a one-man show of a of like a failing artist just sinking deeper into like schizophrenic quicksand as the runtime moves on. Um, but I, I like this film way more than I expected and again it was because. Uh, this this actor, uh, Bo Brunden, carried this whole production on his back. Like, you know, the production team undoubtedly lathered this hero's body in like ben Gay after filming wrapped up. Because I feel like without him, this movie would have just fell to the wayside. Um, you know, my personal rating may seem a bit mediocre, but I still think this is a definite watch for anyone who is interested in those grimy seventies murder filth films. Um, Also keep in mind the director rated his own film like a six out of 10. So uh, two stars for me. All
0: right. Yeah. That's what I thought that I was going to give this like going into the movie. uh, I watched it earlier today, but by time I finished it, my star rating had kind of increased. I mean, all right, so let's run through like the negatives of this movie. Um it feels pretty amateurish. The acting is nothing special except from our main guy. The there's no there's not much of a plot. The pacing and the editing is off. There's some scenes where it's really confusing what happens like on the roof. There's scenes that feel out of place or abrupt like the dating scene or the The scene by The Lighthouse and the the final scene. But with all that said, great music. Incredible musical score. Lifted from library records by Roger Roger. Like wonderful experimental, dark experimental music. The lead performance is good. We don't see a lot of gore effects, but the eyes are well done. Um, And the murder scenes are appropriately disturbing, I guess, because they feel somewhat real. Uh, But most important of all, this entire movie just has that sleazy 70s New York grindhouse feel. It feels dirty. It feels like you need a shower after you watch it. And anything that does that well at putting me in a specific time and place and making me feel like I'm there like that's not easy to do it might not have been done very intentionally in this case but it's done successfully and this movie feels like you know I'd compare it to Henry Portrait of Serial Killer I'd compare it to Witch Who Came from the Sea what was the other movie I compared it to earlier Bad Lieutenant Bad Lieutenant no. Oh, Messiah of Evil. If you enjoy those films which have a little more art house sensibility than this one, but I think that you would enjoy this as well. Uh I'm gonna give this three stars. Wow. Yeah. St. Luke handing out the stars. I think the um I think the music has a lot to do with it, honestly.
1: Yeah, his the music and Brundon's fevered dream insanity.
0: Yeah, so three stars. Um, So kind of a, a light recommend from, from us at Video Store Nightmares. All right, so that is it for Headless Eyes. Next week, we are going back to Italy to discuss the 1980 Lamberto Bava film, Macabre. Also known as Frozen Terror. Have you, you haven't seen this one before, have you, Leland? I have not. So I really love this movie. Um, this was Lamberto Bava's first movie. He went on to do um, Demons and a few other movies that I like. Uh, he did Monster Shark, which is a really obvious but entertaining Jaws ripoff. Anyway, this was his first movie and. If you liked Beyond the Darkness, I think you'll like this. Really similar tonally. Um, so anyway, I'm excited to talk about it. So if you if you want to join us next week, you should go and check out Macabre, Frozen Terror. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime. It's on YouTube. There's DVD and Blu-ray releases. I think the VHS tapes are fairly expensive now, but I have a Japanese one that's real cool.
1: Well, luckily you can find it on YouTube.
0: Yeah. So everyone check it out and join us next week. In the meantime, you can also follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares. And I just posted uh, a cool giveaway. It's going to be for the next. We're going to draw winners on June 17th. So you got about a week from the posting of this episode to do it all you have to do is follow us on instagram uh reshare the image and you'll be entered there's some great vhs tapes some really rare obscure stuff there's um some magazines like some old Fangorias and stuff uh there's um a few dvds so yeah you should you should hit us up there and uh, you have a chance to win All right, um, Leland, any last words? Thank you for your continued support and good luck on the giveaway. All right, awesome. So we will see everybody next week for Macabre. Until then, have a good one. Bye.